Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. I'm hoping to learn today a little bit about how we can branch out on water issues, not, not just in the Western United States where most of us have expertise, but in other parts of the country too. And I'm hoping that um, we can have some great conversations among everybody um, in addition to um, hearing what our panelists have to say. So I've asked them to kind of introduce themselves for about five minutes or ten minutes, explain what their work is and how it relates to water rights and water issues. And then we're going to take the conversation in a few different places. So I'll start with Autumn. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm Autumn Bernhardt. I teach here in the Department of Anthropology, um, but it's kind of a unique position for me because I'm actually an Indian and environmental law attorney. So I practiced Indian law and environmental law for over a decade. And I represented the state of Colorado as an assistant attorney general uh, in the federal and interstate water unit. So my job there, I was actually a counsel of record, the lead counsel in a US Supreme Court case on the interstate compacts. Um, so I had this very um, unique role enforcing prior appropriation law, enforcing compacts on behalf of the state of Colorado. Um, and then I was, prior to that, I was a tribal attorney for the White Mountain Apache tribe. And I worked on cultural resources and natural resources. Uh, so I was part of the Snowball case. And so I don't know if you guys are familiar with that case. A lot of people are, it gets called different, different names, um, but there are, were 13 tribes actually involved in the litigation, and I represented the White Mountain Apache tribe, and we sued the U.S. Forest Service because um, they granted a permit to use uh, reclaimed snow um, for snowmaking purposes, artificial snowmaking purposes, on one of the four sacred mountains. And what's interesting about that case, and I, I, I think maybe this is only exciting to attorneys, or, but it should be exciting to more people, um, is that people talk a lot about Standing Rock, and they think, oh, Standing Rock is just like, this is a unique case, it's over there. Well, it got media coverage, that's what's unique about it. When you look at the litigation for Standing Rock, uh, the causes of action, basically the laws that they are using to sue the federal government, are the exact same laws that we used in Snowball the National Environmental Policy Act, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and the Nas uh, Nas National Historic Preservation Act. So in some ways, what happened in Snowball is happening again in a different context, but increasingly more politicized. Is that the San Francisco Peaks area? Yes. Yep. Sometimes people call it yeah, the San, San Francisco Peaks case or Snowball. Uh, it's actually Navajo Nation et al. versus U.S. Forest Service. And so the litigation um, it was a heartbreaker for me. It really was like um, you win some, you lose some, and that one that one we lost, and it hurt. Um, some of the, some of the cases that I won, uh, you know, for example, like I saved the state of Colorado and and my litigation team saved the state of Colorado millions of dollars in terms of compact damages, um, and that felt good to do my job. Um, to save the state money and, and not to have to pay what we thought was an inequitable remedy to Kansas. Um, but it, 
it, it, I think the hurt of Snowball um, hurt more. And I, I'm not a tribal member of any of those 13 tribes down there. I'm not. I'm, I'm native, um, but I'm not necessarily native to the Colorado River Basin. Um, and it hurt. It was a symbolic um, defeat because we we lost the case. They the 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 court basically said, well, you can still practice tribal religion there. Um, the water's contaminated, but you can more or less do it with contaminated water, which pretty much is a total, total misunderstanding of how Native religion view wild places. And so I've worked on this very, I guess I went off there, but I worked in this very traditional enforcing prior appropriation, enforcing compacts on behalf of a state. And then I worked in this um, respect the spiritual integrity of a sacred mountain aspect of water. And they don't always talk to each other, but it, I think that they should. So. All right, that was fast. Uh, I'm Eric Paramount. I teach down the road here, a couple hours south, depending on traffic, uh, at Colorado College, which is right in downtown Colorado Springs. Uh, and I'm here at the behest of Laura Pascas, who strong-armed her way uh, to getting <laughs> me up here, uh, despite yesterday's weather. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be here on a panel uh, with two other uh, folks who know so much about water in the West. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure where I am with this, but this, this thing came out last year, and it's Unsettled Waters. It's um, 10 years' worth of my life and gray hair and a beard on top of it. Uh, and it's about water rights adjudications in New Mexico, uh, how that process works, how different it is from the state of Colorado. So let me just disclaimer that, because if you ask me about Colorado, I'd be like, that's an individual basis. Uh, it's totally different. Um, and uh, what I wanted to try to explain to a wider audience than just my fellow um, nerdy geographers, and I'm one, um, is why it's important to keep track and understand water adjudications in the West. It is one of those uh, processes that uh, slowly operates in the background that very few people pay attention to until you're sued, until you're part of an adjudication lawsuit. And in New Mexico, it's the state generally, the attorney general, and the Office of the State Engineer that typically trigger, trigger these unless two people on a stream or river system can't get along and then they can trigger the adjudication. Basically, it's a giant lawsuit that is going to account for, uh, document, map, and track how much water use you have as an individual, as a water rights policy. That seems totally logical, seems totally progressive, as in a 1907 way, um, and it's completely slow, complex, inefficient, and super expensive for a state that's maybe the 48th, 49th poorest in the country. Uh, so in a way, it was once I saw this written into the 1907 Water Code that the state was basically blackmailing itself in legal code. Uh, the state shall adjudicate all waters in the state of New Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I became fascinated with this and how long it takes. Uh, if you've read Dickens, any fans of Charles Dickens' Bleak House here? It's a thin little book about yay big. And it's about a lawsuit, it's a, his critique of the chancery courts, you know, in early 1800s England, about how lawsuits outlive generations and generations and generations of people, litigants in the courts. Same thing in New Mexico. Some of these lasted 50 years, 50, five zero. Um, and you have people who have inherited adjudications um, of water rights in a court system, and they don't know what's going on. So I thought that was fascinating. And the other part of this was um, to kind of give voice back to folks who have been adjudicated 
are being sued in the courts and are about to be sued in the courts if their waters have not been counted, if their water rights are not accounted for, uh, to listen to their stories and to take it back to a state audience, to the Office of State Engineer and the Attorney General, so they understand what's happening once people are adjudicated. It actually divides people um, because it's a very adversarial process. Um, so it might be individually that you own five acre feet of water, you own 10 acre feet of water. And that seems very straightforward uh, unless you don't want to respond in writing through legalese or if you didn't initially speak English and you're an Hispano farmer and you ignore it. But it gets worse because then you two are pitted against each other on the same stream shed to say like, well, wait, I know she doesn't use her full 10 acre feet. She only uses eight acre feet. So it starts fights in ways that, um, that were meant and part of the process, but that complicate cultural relationships on streams and rivers across New Mexico. And so I wanted readers to get a real sense of like why that's complicated and why to say adjudication is not simple. Um, and when uh, California, just to drop an example from five years ago, when they were still in the drought, things were so bad, things were so bad, they were thinking that adjudication might help them to start an adjudication, because they don't do that at all. I thought, wow, things must be really bad in California if they think adjudication will help them clear up water rights. Um, there's something like four to five times as many paper rights to water in California as there is water, like actual water, real water. Um, so you could just imagine, like, if like Enron had known 20 years ago how broke they were, right, and having to document it, that's what would have happened to California. Right. So this notion of sort of how we've treated water in the West as a paper right versus an actual wet thing, the actual substance of water, to me, is fascinating. And I'll stop there and let it fester a little bit in your minds. But uh, I want to leave you with at least a few of those thoughts about these social and natural science fictions of water that we tell ourselves as if they are neat and compact and can be easily solved, but they're not. So I'll pass it on. Hi, I'm Navina Sadasava. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Laura, for having me on the panel. I'm currently a staff writer at Grist, and I was previously at the Texas Observer for three years and before then Inside Climate News and ProPublica. And I really started writing about Western water issues about five years ago when I joined ProPublica um, as a fellow and worked with an environmental reporter there about a five-part series on the Colorado River. Um, so looking at, for instance, use it and lose it laws, for instance, in Colorado, and how they kind of push farmers to use water that they really don't need to be using, right? So in terms of conservation and saving water, what does that mean when there are incentives in the law that can push farmers and ranchers uh, to use more than they actually need to be using for their purposes? Um, we, we looked, for instance, at the phenomenal growth in Las Vegas and the kinds of pressures that's placing on the water systems there looked at um, farming in Arizona, for instance, and the systems, uh, the incentives in place that basically allow farmers to grow uh, really water-intensive crops in the middle of the desert, essentially, right? And so looking at all of the laws, the structures, the systems in place that enable that to happen and how that's exacerbating some of the demand supply issues that we have on the Colorado River. And then uh, last year, I worked on a project about the Rio Grande, and that's kind of how Laura and I got connected. Um, mostly, I focused on the Texas-Mexico part of it because worked for the Texas Observer and mostly focused on that section of the river. But anytime I needed to understand what was happening upstream in New Mexico and the headwaters here in Colorado, I looked 
to Laura's reporting. Uh, but that was a nine-part series that I worked on uh, with another reporter at Quartz, and we looked at how climate change is exacerbating so many of the problems on that river, right? So, for instance, um, on the Rio Grande, right, so the, the Rio Grande, just for context, starts at the headwaters here in the Rockies, flows through New Mexico, and then forms the Texas-Mexico border for about 1,200 miles, and it flows into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and if you look in the Rio Grande Valley, those last four counties right at the southern tip of uh, Texas, water is being pulled from the river and distributed through these intricate systems of canals, uh, just as it is here in the West in lots of places, right? Um, and you see that when the river is, is struggling, when their flows are really low, um, it becomes very difficult to push that water through those systems 50, 60 miles inland. And so during the drought in 2013, there were cities that technically had water rights. They had a right to the water, but there was no practical way of pushing that water through the canals and getting it to the cities because it would all evaporate or seep into the ground by the time it got there, right? So these are some of the sort of practical realities of what might happen you know, as, our, as the temperatures warm, as climate change gets worse, some of these existing issues that we have in the infrastructure just kind of worsen. They become much more apparent, I think. Um, and so that's always been kind of an interest of mine, is sort of looking and tracking how climate change is going to affect water availability um, in a lot of Western states. And so that's kind of my background. I think what I hope to contribute to this conversation is how do we write about these really, really complex issues in a way that's understandable, easy to grab for the average reader who maybe does not understand what adjudication is and, or what the prior appropriation doctrine is. And there's a lot of technical nuance in, in these discussions. And so how do you kind of make that relatable? How do you make that engaging to the average person? That's what I hope to talk about. Um, so that's one of the things, like, when you're working with editors or talking about water stories, a lot of times, you know, water stories are considered to be, um, I don't know, does anybody else have the experience in here of, like, your editors don't want you writing water stories because mm -hmm. they think they're boring? Total lie, right? Water stories are really interesting to everybody. And so I was hoping that... Um, we could talk here a little bit about some of like the intimacy of writing about water. It affects people's lives. Um, one of the, if you are around, you should totally buy Eric's book. It is a great water book. And part of the reason I like it is the beginning you talk about how it conveys the voices and concerns of actual people caught up in the legal labyrinth of what are known as water rights adjudication. And, and you write about how what can, this work that can seem like really boring or full of legalese is partly why this process has been ignored. And I think we kind of tend to do that in journalism sometimes, too. These issues are too complex, too boring. Our editors hate them. Um, and so how do we write about water in a more engaging and um, an interesting way? And I think the three of you have really good perspectives on that. And I was hoping you could maybe offer the journalists in the in the audience a little bit of advice on, on those issues. I guess I'll start. Um, I had the, the fortune after practicing water law and Indian law to actually teach it to students. And it gives me a, a wonderful perspective on what, what knowledge students come to my classroom with and what they lack. And it's kind of unfortunate I found that students don't know where their water or their food comes from. 
and I think that's probably reflective of the general population. If you were to ask a person, what watershed are you in? What is the water that's flowing through your tap? Where does that come from? Where, where did that food on your plate come from? These are basic questions that I think um, our, our supposedly civilized society has not prepared us to answer because it separated us from the most human things. So when you think of water, those are just water stories. Those are people stories, right? We're made up of water. We drink water. We need water for agriculture. We need it for everything. We're, it, how to be so disconnected from something that is so intimate to us is unfortunate, and it pervades everything. It pervades journalism. It pervades education. It pervades science. It pervades law. And... Um, you know, I, I enjoy really good quality water reporting, and, and I, I appreciate that when the, when the journalists take the time to really understand the law and use the right language because law is very language-specific. But I think, you know, you, we live here in the, in the western United States where prior appropriation is the law of the land, and when, when people inter interact with the water, they don't think about the law. I do, and maybe that's just because I'm a lawyer and it made me neurotic. Um, <laughs> but uh, that being said, it should make everybody neurotic because there are so many questions on the horizon. Climate change is just one. Even if, even if we took climate change out of the room, we're still in an arid state where drought is prevalent. We're still in a place with tremendous amount of population growth. There are so many different pressures on water right now. Those are people stories. They're not just water stories. They can't be divorced. People need to understand what keeps them alive. I, I, it's, it makes life more fulfilling, I would think. Um, it certainly makes them better voters in a democracy. Um, to, to understand what keeps them alive and how really in a lot of ways democracy works. That's another thing that I noticed in my classes. You know, I, I asked students about, you know, uh, what is democracy? Why does it matter? And they, they struggle. They just aren't, I, I think people in some ways, and you know, journalism is tough because it is, it is based in the market, but it's essential to democracy. And um, I just think we could have a better discussion around water if we actually can talk each other's language. And I know it's a hard language because it's very legal. And there's a reason for that, and there's a long history to that. Um, but I, I, appreciate, I appreciate it when they see that. And I appreciate when they bring in uh, native water rights. A lot of times, I'll just say this, you know, we talk about water shortages. Who has the most senior water rights in the Colorado River Basin? Tribes. Tribes, absolutely. How many of those water rights are quantified, are resolved? Very few. Very few. So we have this big question mark on top of the other question marks of climate change, on top of the explosion of population boom, the explosions of cities and towns, and we don't even have necessarily resolved tribal water rights, who are the most senior water rights in the basin. We're working at a solution, like, from the wrong end of it. So, you know, talking about water is... is it's, in, it's essentially environmental, it's essentially an environmental justice issue. Hard to follow up on that. Um, as a geographer, for when I first sort of moved back out to uh, Colorado in 2005, I really was looking for just a simple small piece 
on water that I wanted to write actually for High Country News. So I thought, okay, a 2,000 word, I'll spit it out. It'll be on the Sakias, it'll be fun. People love that stuff. Then I asked the wrong question, which is like, what's this water rights adjudication stuff to one of these parciantes in New Mexico? And he just sort of like dead turned to me. He's like, who wants to know? <laughs> As if I just, you know, killed his dog. Um, so that's when I realized, okay, water law is not boring. And the more I read water law, I became more and more fascinated. Um, and not just because of the Latin, not just because of, of statutes, but because of sort of the, uh, the, the stasis stability it has to provide in order to make decisions, right? Even more so than even science, right? Um, law cannot tolerate much uncertainty, even though science has uncertainty built into it. So I became fascinated with this notion of like how law can be used in different ways. And when I started writing this book, I tried to view it more in sort of critical legal studies ways to look at legal pluralism. Because um, if you understand New Mexico, if you've been there, there are at least, at least three cultures of water, uh, where water is sacred uh, if you're on a native sovereign nation, and it fits into the whole uh, cosmovision of how you understand uh, your place in the world with water. Um, water is for sharing if you're on a community ditch or you're a member of an acequia, um, an Hispanic Hispano irrigation ditch in New Mexico, and you share in the suffering when there's no water, or you share in the plenty when it's a good water year. Um, but prior appropriation has nothing to do with it on that ditch, zero, um, until the third culture of water comes along, which is water as a property right, which can then be disassembled or dissembled from larger notions of water and allocated to individuals, right? Three acre feet, five acre feet, 10 acre feet, right? So these very different notions of what we think of as water um, have very different starting points and end points. And I became fascinated with that, that there were at least sort of three different ways to conceptualize and think of water. Um, and I was also trying to give some attention to the storytelling, mm -hmm. which, look, as academics, we usually suck at that. Um, all I have to do is go back to a general faculty meeting, and within 10 minutes, I'm like, <laughs> um, we cannot speak clearly. Very few people want to say it plainly or bluntly. Um, so we're really bad at that sometimes. And I think in some ways, I'm really happy to be here because what's happened in the last 20, 30 years, even if institutional journalism has let's say, fallen on hard times. Uh, it's also a time for great journalism, right, as a noun, because the kind of short, long, digital narrative, uh, creative storytelling uh, that you can do now is a little bit different than it was 30 or 40 years ago, when everyone was employed at a paper and you shared a desk. And, um, so I think that the notion of who, who gets to tell the story, how do we tell those, uh, requires a better collaboration uh, between the folks who are kind of quietly like digging in the weeds and get fascinated with a particular one thing, whether that's water adjudication, versus the folks who have to clearly tell a larger compelling story, like this is why it effing matters mm -hmm. to their editor. Uh, and for us to have you know better communication on those fronts, because I think it's vital. And if we don't hit people uh, between the eyes um, in making those stakes clear to them, well, then we know what happens. Uh, winner takes all, which is usually cities, uh, which is usually population centers, which is usually um, the 1% of water users, if you want to think of it that way. So what I was trying to do with the book and 274 interviews later was trying to give voice to the folks who have gone through adjudication, 
who have been dragged through the courts, sometimes for no good reason, as they put it, uh, because they own nothing but like two acre feet of water or four acre feet of water, and they're in a court system for 15 years. Where's the logic in that? Um, one of the suits in here is called AMOT, double A-M-O-D-T, um, and it was the longest running federal uh, court case uh, for almost 50 years, 50, five zero. Uh, and finally went to settlement, a water settlement process where everyone sort of got to the table, took the courts out of it, and tried to come up with an agreement. The feds threw some money at it. The state threw some money at it. And what you get in the end is no less complex, no less ugly. Uh, but people walked away going, okay, well, we, it was like adjudication with benefits. There was some money that we walked away with. People got some water out of it. Um, but those are really complex tales. And in that valley, this is the Pohoake Valley, uh, just north of Santa Fe. Uh, small basin that has very little surface water, but they probably spent on it in the legal process twice as much as what the land was worth in that entire basin. I'll repeat that. They spent twice as much on the legal case to try to count water rights as the land was worth in that entire basin north of Santa Fe. Strange. Kafkaesque. So I'm going to repeat what Autumn said, which is that water stories are stories about people, right? Bottom line, any editor who tells you that these, are, these stories are too wonky, we're not interested in them, we can't get readers interested in these stories, you kind of have to do some explaining, I think, uh, to get the message across. Um, so, you know, whether you're looking at, so for instance, Eric was just talking about how some of these folks have been dragged through the courts for 15 years over two acre feet or four acre feet. There's an engaging long form narrative story right there, right? Just from that one sentence. You can see that has so much potential. You can dive into the adjudication system and the injustices of that system while also maybe potentially looking at a family or a rancher or a farmer or a water rights owner who's had that struggle and has kind of worked through that over 15 years. Um, there's, so I'll, I'll maybe explain uh, with an example. Um, in Texas, for instance, depends on the state that you're in, but Texas, the laws don't recognize the connection between groundwater and surface water. That's It's kind of an issue in a number of states, but in Texas, it's particularly bad. Um, and so there's a river uh, in, in the state called the San Saba. It's, it's you know, tiny little uh, river. Um, and there are f farmers upstream and ranchers downstream. And this river goes dry for 40 miles pretty much every summer, right? And the ranchers blame the farmers because the farmers upstream have irrigation wells right on the banks of the river, right? Now, the ranchers, the farmers are claiming that they're pulling water out uh, from underground. These are groundwater wells. But when you have an irrigation well, well right on the banks of a river, you're pulling from the underflow of the river, right? Except there's no science to back that up. That seems to be, uh, that seems intuitive and it seems like common sense, but there's no science, at least on that river, to back up the fact that the underground, the water that they're pulling from is actually coming from the river. And so there's this huge battle that's playing out between these ranchers and farmers, right? And so it's essentially a question of the laws don't recognize the interconnection between surface water and groundwater. Um, and, and you have property rights in Texas that are uh, hugely important, um, and these farmers own the land, and so they own all of the water under, under that land, right? And that's how Texas law sees it. So you can write a very sort of 
information-dense story about the legal aspects of the story, or you can kind of frame it in this larger narrative of these farmers and ranchers who are essentially at odds and you know fighting against each other. And essentially, what, what is the reason for that? It's because the laws are unclear, um, it's undefined, and it doesn't quite recognize the interconnections um, that exist in reality, right? Um, and so that so there are ways to look at these stories that are essentially stories about either science or uh, legal systems and kind of make them interesting, I think, to the average person, right? I ended up finding um, a farmer and rancher from the two towns who were friends, who went to church together and then kind of stopped talking to each other because of this, right? And so that became the narrative structure for that story. And so there are ways to, I think, tell these stories that are really engaging, really interesting, um, and kind of slip in all the, you know, the legalese and the the details about uh, water adjudication into that story. So the reader doesn't even quite realize uh, that they've learned stuff along the way. Yeah. So, Navita, do you have any advice for, because you've worked in, you've worked for a number of different publications and different geographic areas on different issues. Do you have advice for reporters who might be new to the beat sure. or new to an area where they're trying to develop sources or expertise? Yeah. Yeah, it can be uh, quite challenging starting out. I would say there's there's a pretty steep learning curve, and it takes a while to kind of understand these terms and kind of familiarize yourself with the system because there are so many interests, so many different incentives, so many different state and local agencies and you know groups that are involved. And so my recommendation, especially if you're starting out, is to give yourself some time to learn about it before you start writing about it, right? Uh, so... What I mean by that is start going to local river board commission meetings, for instance. Just start start attending them knowing that you're not going to write anything about it, right? You're just going to take notes, try to absorb what people are talking about. Uh, for start. the journalists, I just I just want to respond to that because yeah. it's hard for attorneys to, yeah. <laughs> to, to understand water law. It, 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 it is a steep learning curve yeah. even for people that do it every day. And so I applaud journalists who take the time to learn about it because it, it was hard for me too. It was hard for me too. I'm definitely still learning. There's so much <laughs> me too. to absorb. Me too. Uh, so yeah, just sort of stepping back, I think, and um, allowing yourself some room and space. You know, I think we're pulled in so many different directions as journalists now. Newsrooms are getting smaller, but to write about water stories well, I think that's crucial. It just takes time. Um, I would say do lots and lots of background interviews with attorneys, with researchers, with anthropologists, scientists who understand these issues well and just kind of talk to them, take them out for coffee and, you know, start tracking things. Set up Google alerts, for instance, so that you have things coming into your inbox about whichever river or basin or whatever topic you're interested in so that that becomes part of your regular reading for a while. And then as you track the news on that, you'll kind of understand what development is interesting and worth writing a story about, right? Because sometimes that can be hard to figure out, too, because there's so many court cases and there are little developments happening and you don't quite understand what the significance of a certain, you know, development is exactly and whether you should write about it. So I think it just takes some time and give yourself some space to do that. It's not something that you can just just jump into the deep end, if you will, um, on Adam, I was wondering, I'm intrigued by what you were talking about earlier, kind of how, um, I'm totally paraphrasing, but how Standing Rock got more like media attention, even though these were the same issues as Snowball and similar cases. I was wondering, how does media attention 
on issues like that? I mean, obviously it doesn't affect how a court rules, but like how, how, do, how does media attention affect these issues within communities and kind of the popular perception of these issues that are really important to tribal communities? And how can we do a better job of um, communicating that not all tribes are the same and not every issue is the same? How do we do that better, and does it matter? <laughs> I still don't know why Standing Rock got so much attention. I, I mean, it is still phenomenal to me that Standing Rock got the attention it did. I appreciate the fact that it did, um, but I still don't know. Sometimes I think maybe it was kind of uh, the, the democratization of, of, of media where people on the ground who maybe weren't journalists in the traditional sense were actually reporting. I think that might have been a part of it. Maybe it was just the zeitgeist of an era, some mystery ingredient. I appreciate that it happened, you know, but at the same time standing, I, I'm Lakota, so I'm grateful that, that it did happen, let me say that. At the same time though, through Ojibwe lands, the exact same company was building pipelines. So this focus, this hyper-focus on this issue, and I think in some ways it kind of treated the issue like it was like, can you believe this is happening? And I was kind of like, can, how can you not believe that it's happening? This is all of American history. You know, like dams have been disproportionately placed on reservation land, that land has been taken. That This happens over and over and over again. And even even the lake, the lake was taken by the federal government and placed there. So there was a whole history behind that did, that didn't get covered in the media, right? It was just the protest. And then when the protest cease, I it's hard for me to find. I have to actually go to Earth Justice, who's the attorney for the tribe, to find any very good reporting on Standing Rock now. So it's sort of like it was like protest, 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 gas, and then nothing. And it's still ongoing. And so, while I'm grateful for it, like the hyper, the microscope kind of diminished the fact that, hey, there's a long history of environmental injustice toward tribes with respect to water, with respect to natural gas pipelines, um, with respect to anything, right? That was, that was obscured by the hyper focus. The fact that other tribes were dealing with this and have dealt with this for a long time, that was obscured. Um, so I was, while well, I was in some ways kind of like awed and, and grateful that it was being covered, I was really, it seemed like it was being covered out of context. And then the coverage just stopped. And now, like the real meaning of it, like, but like once again, I am an attorney, right, is in the courtroom and that's, that's what I'm following to see what's gonna happen. What's going to happen? How is, snow, how is Snowball, how was the San Francisco Peaks case and all that precedent that, fight, that tribes have fought against, right? Which I think in a lot of ways are misinterpretations of the law. I think we should have won that case. We should have won that case. Um, if the law had been applied properly, what's going to happen next? Will the law be applied properly? So, I don't know. Did I answer all the questions? Yeah, and I'm curious how does, like, um, how does media attention affect some of these issues like that you've worked on, whether it was the Colorado um, cases or the um, snowball? Like, 
because so I'm a total egomaniac and with every story I write I'm like oh yeah the military's totally gonna stop polluting groundwater now that they see this <laughs> Oh, yeah, everything is changing now, but, you know, it never does. I, no, I, I, I think I suffer from that type of romanticism, too. I, I really do. I'm like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. It's, this is the time. Um, there wasn't a whole lot. Uh, I was reading the Arizona Republic when I was working on the case, so I was in Prescott in the courthouse. And um, Navajo Nation brought down some tribal elders, and there was uh, several tribes that protested outside of the courtroom. And they covered that. They didn't seem to really cover the court proceedings that much. The protests were, uh, they were, they were significant, and you know I'm glad that there was a public involvement to it, but I don't think they really understood what was going on in the case, was my perspective. Um, and then it just, it lived on through other people that cared about the case on blogs and, and um, through their own initiative. Uh, the Colorado cases that I worked on, we always kind of, at the AG's office, we were, my boss always said, uh, the, the less news there is, the better. And I kind of agreed as an attorney, we're just sort of like, we'll just take care of this and we'll do a public release. And a, a lot of times what I was working on was Nobody really cared in a lot of ways. It was very big. I mean, I was working on U.S. Supreme Court cases, but they're U.S. Supreme Court cases that had to do with water. And, you know, if it got in, it got on, like, you know, page 23, like, I don't know, under, like, a Walmart ad or something. So, and, and I guess that was okay because I didn't get a whole, whole lot of interference. The local, uh, the some of the local, um, like, on the Rio Grande, it was tough because the attorneys would, the attorneys that were fighting against us would call up the local media and be like, Tell them to do this. This is it. Attorney General is out of her mind. She's going to start World War III down here. And um, so that happened, like, sometimes, and I was like, oh, you know, you know he's crazy. <laughs> you know that. So why are you going to report on him? Get a better source. Um, but <laughs> that's not how the case is going at all. We're just doing our job here. There's a process. Um, so I've had good experience, neutral experience. I've had the whole gamut of experience with respect to water and, and me as an attorney and just also as a reader. If I could just add on to that, um, I will say one of my biggest pet peeves in terms of how stories are framed, especially water stories, is this this framing of like, oh, the water wars are coming, you know, um, especially here in the U.S. It's uh, if you take, for instance, reporting even on the Colorado River, every now and then you'll see, oh, tensions are flaring up and, with the, you know, the sides are battling against each other and so on. And yes, of course, there is tension. Absolutely, there is. I'm not saying that there isn't. But if you look at the historical context, there's a lot more cooperation, I, I would say, on the Colorado River now than ever before. Um, and also, you know, there's there's a ton of research out there that shows that Often when it comes to water, countries, communities, states, cities are willing to compromise and work with each other because everybody knows that they can't live without water. And so that leads to more cooperation than conflict. And there's research to back that up. There's a great uh, researcher at Oregon State, Aaron Wolf, who's written, published papers on this uh, particular issue, right? So this this narrative that sometimes gets gets pushed out there that there's always conflict when there's 
when, when we're talking about water, that conflict is somehow inevitable when it comes to water. That's not necessarily true. There are so many cooperative agreements, um, you know, people working together to find solutions that 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 really work for all parties involved. And so where are those stories, right? Um, so in terms of sort of framing and when you're maybe assigned to a story potentially, um, yes, there are narratives that you can spin about people kind of fighting each other, but there are also solutions that are being discussed, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's something for reporters to consider as well, that it doesn't necessarily have to be all about the conflict when it comes to water. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I, it gets tired, the, the <laughs> war, and, and, and I, you know, I am an attorney, so obviously I had a side, and I thought there was an outcome that right you consider it winning as an attorney um there was an outcome that i thought would be winning um and but you're right i think and i think it alienates readers to have like this hysteria about it yeah it, it alienates them because it's the same time how many water times what are the water wars coming that right, they right. just tune out in a way we have just kind of a crisis culture i will say this though this is just kind of an interesting fact um when Kansas sues us on compacts, um, it's a formal requirement to get before the Supreme Court to prove cases uh, bellus, a case of war. So that's kind of interesting in terms of they have to prove that, that this is a case of war to get invoke original jurisdiction when a state sues another on water, which is interesting. Now, that's a little bit separate from the way it's reported because I absolutely agree that it should be covered with less exaggeration mm -hmm. and and for a lack of appreciation of the the cooperation the other thing I would say and, and I just came in my mind is that um, a lot of times there's a great deal of hand-wringing in the news articles I read oh my god there's just not enough water and there's so many people and we're in these arid states it's like like half of the article is just hand-wringing about this terrible crisis some people have solutions exactly I have solutions I have solutions, I have experience. Other people have good solutions too. So please spend less time hand-wringing. There's opportunities. So I wanted to give both of the audience a chance to ask some questions of our panelists because I will totally dominate and keep asking questions. But. Can I make a comment? Mm -hmm. I've been on and off writing about water issues for about 30 years and um, you know, how you, what you call things makes a difference in how people think about things. Uh, and the term water right uh, implies ownership of the water. But in all Western states, the water is, is owned by the citizens of the state, not the people who may use it. Uh, and I've more recently been investigating in Oregon, where I recently moved to, and the Supreme Court in Oregon, and this has implications to all sorts of water things, has ruled that the uh, use of water being taken from a river can only occur so long as it doesn't affect the fish <coughs> ecosystems and so forth, the primary purposes which the state has an obligation as a public trust to protect, which it doesn't in Oregon. But anyway, just the idea of calling it maybe water privileges instead of water rights, or at least make the distinction that water rights only applies to if you decide to take water from a river, who gets to use it? It's a, it's a nuance, but it makes a difference in how you think about it. I guess I'll take that because there are certain legal elements. Is that all right? Sure, I'll follow up. Um, water is actually a use of fructory right. So the property right is in the use of the water. 
not in the possession, the holding of it necessarily. It's a usufructory right. So it is a property right under prior appropriation. It is a property right. And any time we started regulating, usually uh, in, in an effort to have us comply with a compact, the first thing um, farmers a lot of times in the eastern states would, or in the eastern plains would do would raise the Fifth Amendment. Have you guys heard of Fifth Amendment takings, right, regulatory takings? Um, these r routinely get uh, – people think of, of environmental law and water law as completely separate from the Constitution, but it's really not. The Constitution comes up a lot of times in natural resources law. And their concern was is that we were over-regulating, right? We were basically taking a property right under the Fifth Amendment. So it is a property right. And I think it's – if you call it privileges, that's not – true. I, I'm a native person and I have an animistic view of the world, but I've also worked in water law and it is a property right and you have to treat it as such. And I'll tell you why it's important. Because tribes have water rights. If you go kind of messing up the system, you're messing with tribal water rights too. Yeah, right? It's, it's, it's when, you can, when you critique something, you kind of need to have something in place that will take the place of that instead of create a vacuum. Does that make sense? Like, uh, a lot of people are like, well, there's all these farmers. We'll just take the farmer's water and we'll give it somewhere else. Well, this is America. Property rights really do matter. We're, we're capitalistic. How do you create environmental justice with what we have? And that's what I, I want to have, like, practical solutions to things, right? How do you create environmental justice? You can change things, yes, but there are certain things. When, it, when does it become inequitable, even if it's an inequity to a non-native group? That's still an inequity to me, Right? The, the promise of the U.S. is a promise for everybody. Um, and so I, it is a property right. And the, the public domain doctrine, it's kind of, I, I think it's kind of beautiful in a way, in a lot of ways. I think it's beautiful. It, ha it occurs more in California, right? California is a little different. Um, other, other places are getting it, um, you know, with, the, with mono lakes and things like that. But the public trust doctrine, um, I, I, I can tell you Colorado will fight it. People in Colorado. The Mohawk tribe just ruled that they saw the Klamath River as having rights of in and of itself of, along those lines. That uh, personhood. Yeah. Personhood. The Yurok. The Yurok. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Amy Cordalis, who's the general counsel mm -hmm. of the Yurok tribe, and is mm -hmm. working to take out the Klamath River basin. I would I would recommend her and her husband actually wrote a law review called. Um, uh, well, I, I can give you the art, but her, her, her husband's name is Dan Cordellis. Her name's Amy Cordellis, and they wrote uh, basically on the Colorado River Basin. It was in the Arizona Environmental Law Policy Journal. And she writes a beautiful article about the, the uncertainty of tribal water rights. I will say this, like, I used to work with South American folks, and their constitutions talk about the personhood of natural resources, um, but on the ground, there's a big question of how that's going to be enforced. Who's going to enforce it? Who's going to have standing to enforce the personhood of, of water and trees and plants? Um, indigenous people in a lot of ways do that as it is because uh, we're connected to these things through religious means. So when we fight for them, it tends to be in terms of religious, um, but we've also gotten a lot of pushback too, right? And we weren't successful in Snowball. So um, I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question, but... Yeah. No, I, I think you, you made the legal argument, and I'm trying to make more of a changing the political understanding of it. So. And uh, I'm trying to argue for the rights of the river, so to speak. Yeah, this is always fascinating to watch. Uh, <laughs> because I think, you know, some of this is like words matter. 
Yes. They matter in law and they matter in discourse. So there, there's your happy medium point. But, but I think the the notion that you know anyone can own water, you know, this is a rental. It's going right through me, right? So I think to your point, right, that you know we have treated water um, like fixed property doesn't work that way. We've treated wildlife as a state resource that game and parks manages separate from the federal land it prances upon. Total fiction, right? And yet we've had to do that, and uh, we're really good at doing that in a capitalist society of severing resource by resource by resource and then giving rights to those. I, th I think the language of rights, too, is problematic. Even when it's like, oh, you have the right to water. I'm like, great, where's the water? Right? So even when you put in an internationalist perspective, right, of humans have a right to water. Okay, well, how do you get it? So I think the notion of access to it, that dispensing those water rights, right? I, I see the logic in there, there's an order to it, but I also think we have to uh, question how, um, I'm not here to start a fight, mm -hmm. but how we treat law as scripture a little too much, right? We're reluctant to modify or edit these things. Just look at the obsession about the Constitution. They call them amendments for some reason. They had been changed, right? They'd been drafted. Uh, and we treat state water laws the same way. And the other aspect that's really interesting is I came to understand this slowly because I'm not that intelligent, but in New Mexico is that they really kind of ignored prior appropriation for most of the 20th century until they were under adjudication. Mm -hmm. And the state engineer shows up and he's like, well, how much water are you like? So like, well, we use three circos. And they're like, what's a circo? And they're like, well, it's about this much. Okay. And they would do these hand gestures because you were forcing a culture to translate their water norms of what they did legally under Spanish law to a new Anglo-American system that did violence to the old system, forcing it to translate to a new metric, right? Like that's what we have to wrestle with. Law, just like all our own disciplines, has its own past. So law is fundamentally violent at that point of encounter when you have to retranslate what law means to a new society. The Spanish did it to the indigenous peoples. Anglos did it to the Hispanos. This is not a new narrative. So I think that notion of that a water right is, is a problematic way of dealing with something that's always slipping through our fingers because we can't own it. You can try to stockpile it, but you'll fail. Um, and so I, I think it, it requires a different kind of um, description for it. And I, I don't think there's... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, this, but uh, it, it is, you know, air is even more problematic as the, the bottomless commons that we know what we're doing to. Uh, but with water, I think it's it's this weird, slippery, fungible thing that we don't know how to, and we try to treat it like fixed property, and we've utterly failed. So homesteading wasn't about land, it was about water out here. Hi, my name's Ashley Ahern, I'm a freelance for NPR, I live in a small valley in north central Washington state. Um, and speaking of water as a, as a property, um, ranchers in the valley where I live are trying to sell their water rights to big banks to sure permit development elsewhere outside of the valley where this river flows. And I would just love to hear your thoughts about how, how is that happening across the West? I've heard it's happening in Colorado as well. And what I'd love to hear is some thoughts about the legality of that. If you speak about it as a property right or as a right, can you, can you then turn around and sell it outside of its own watershed? Yes. Well, if you look at like where we are right now, we're, we use Trans Basin water. 
yep. right? We're not living within our means right now. We're not using Poudre River watershed water necessarily. We're part of the CBT project, the Colorado Big Thompson project. So the reality of the West is these trans-basin, huge reservoirs, pipelines, moving water wherever the population is, and, and in some ways to compensate for population, right, which then encourages it. And I, as a side, I think that's inappropriate. I, I think that's, that's a limit. We should respect um, water basins more, right? We should respect water basins more, and I think there should be laws. So when I talk about the sanctity of law, there are some things that are you know, important for social stability, for equity, for injustice. Um, and then there are certain things that you can change. You can change the law of abandonment, like use it or lose it. There are ways to change that. That's, that's conceivable. Um, and I think there's ways to say, you know, you can put moratoriums on things too, or at least try to. Some moratoriums have failed, right? Um, but it, it, Cadillac Desert, if you, you guys have probably all, all read that. That's Right, we're in a new era where we're sort of like that was back then. What are we going to do now, right? Because we just piped the water in and water got sold. And right now, with our population base, we're not going to have enough water by 2050. So they're looking at the Yampa and the White and all sorts of very like ridiculous engineering feats, in my opinion that don't respect uh, basins of water. And I think that's where the new laws need to be. Like about, we need to have laws about what we allow as far as import, it's called importation of water, right? Importation of water. Um, do we take it out of a basin or not? And to what extent? When do we say no? Because it encourages growth. It compensates for growth and it encourages growth in places that are arid. in the middle Rio Grande Valley where I live where mm -hmm. farmers have sold their water to uh, uh, water brokers or cities and and yet they've they've kept the lands and sold the water rights and so what the irrigation district has done is they have a water bank where they're still supplying water to these users so it's like this double dipping that happens um, and so, I mean, I think it is, at least in New Mexico, it's, it's pretty common, I would imagine, in other places in the West, too. Say, I'm, a, in addition to a journalist, I'm an alfalfa farmer in Las Cruces, New Mexico, mm -hmm. which is part of the Elephant View Irrigation District. And we've seen this in Roswell, Lava Pegas, where they did sell their water rights because they were under tough times and they needed the money. But then that water has that land has remained fallow. They mm -hmm. can't subdivide it because that would be double dipping. They can't find any water to put on it because then they've already sold their water rights. So it actually <coughs> is detrimental to the community because then you have this fallowed land that's not doing anything except growing wheat. So it's a mm -hmm. it's a precarious situation. And yeah. it's everywhere in the West, mm -hmm. everywhere. Like every state has examples of these transfer water rights. I mean, that's yeah. the thing that boggles my mind. And, even in here, like once I understood like the shell games going on between adjudication suits, and they were retiring one set of groundwater rights in one valley on the Rio Grande, 100 miles north of where they were gonna take out surface water rights for an irrigation. I'm like, you know guys, that's not the same water. And they're like, shh, shh. <laughs> the law says it must be done for the settlement, right? You can't screw the deal up. So I think these notions that, that the political arrangements right around these things uh, are pretty powerful and the same kind of iron triangle that was set up 50 years ago in the critique you know by Reasoner is still operational it's just getting disguised better as pipelines not dams transfer points and conduits and exchanges with water banks right or oh we'll take some of your 
groundwater this year, Vegas and Arizona, and then you can take more surface water off the Colorado. So there's a lot more swapping and invisible um, water debt dealing that's occurring. Yep. But that infrastructure is not dead. It's just becoming less visible so that it becomes less of an issue for us to talk about it. And cities and towns are becoming water monopolies and oligopolies, which, you know, people always cite like, oh, you know, 80% of water in Colorado is used for agriculture. But there's a growing trend everywhere where the, these water rights are bought up from everywhere. Like you look yeah. at um, Aurora, like Aurora owes, owes a tremendous amount of water that's in southern Colorado, completely out of the basin. Um, and so there's this power concentration in cities now, in western cities, because they have those water rights. And when you say that 80% of water is used for agriculture, I think we need to understand that that's not just going into the ground, it's actually producing the food that we eat every day. So you can see that 80% is actually going into the grocery store, you know, because that's where that water ends up. Well, most of it's used for irrigation of pastures. And that is a very inefficient use of And that is a great conversation for another day. <laughs> Hi, um, I just wanted to follow up on that. My name is Luke Runyon. I work for KUNC, and I run a project that focuses on water issues in the Colorado River Basin. And I've, I've been really interested to watch the role of tribes in the Colorado River Basin, especially during the, this drought contingency plan process. Tribes were asserting themselves in that discussion a lot more so than they have in the past or were allowed to in the past. Um, and I've talked to some tribes who feel really frustrated with um, the way that their treaties are set up that makes it harder for them or impossible to lease or find more value in the water rights that they have. Um, I'm just wondering if anybody on the panel has, has heard similar sorts of things or you know what, what's behind that. And, and whether the, whether water leasing from tribes to maybe municipalities should be viewed as an opportunity or maybe a cautionary tale? This is actually a tough question for me because as a person, I really think as a practitioner in water law, as a native person, I really think that the native basins should be respected. On the other hand, I understand the economic development issue on reservations and when really all you have to like sell or lease is water or natural gas or something like that, it raises these ethical questions. And I just kind of defer to tribal sovereignty in that respect. There's a preference that I have for me, what I would advocate for in my political affiliations within the state of Colorado. What I'm not necessarily going to tell Navajo what they can do or not do. Does that make sense? I won't. That's that's them. That's their decision to make, um, as long as it's compliant. But you know, the other thing too is um, this kind of goes a little bit back. So tribes have a priority date that's established as of the date of the reservation, and then under Arizona versus California, the water qu quantity is based on practically irrigable acreage. And so I worked on the Adair cases with the Klamath tribes, and there was some issue there because, you know, tribes didn't necessarily want to be, the case called them, this is a quote from the case, this is not from Autumn, this quote, it was the desire of the government and, and the Indians to become pastoral and civilized people that established water rights for tribes. That's the case, and we like that case because it established water rights for tribes, but it has this language. Tribes are saying, well, we like the fact that we have senior water rights, but we didn't we don't want to farm. We don't want to farm. We want we want water for fish and culturally sensitive plants. 
And so giving tribes more uh, flexibility to actually use that water has been hard. And, and we had to sue to actually get those water rights changed from agriculture, because that was the assimilationist policy of the federal government to tribes to for fish and, and food. Um, it was harder probably than it should have been. When it comes to, to leasing and things like that, you know, sometimes it's the farmers that want to lease from tribes too. And that's a little bit closer sometimes, occasionally, like geographically. And so there's questions as to like, who gets the lease, how long, it's contextual. For me in Colorado and dealing with so much trans-basin water diversions, I don't feel comfortable with them here in Colorado. that third rail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Jared Smith. I'm editor of Freshwater News in Denver. Um, and I wanted to, this is another question for Autumn. So as I'm sure you're aware, late last year, the Utes in Utah asked for a seat on the Upper Colorado River Commission. And I don't think it's gone anywhere yet. And Or maybe it has, so forgive me if I missed something. But um, so the, the lot, so the, you know, the argument against that occurring is that federal tribal water rights are completely separate from state water rights. The Upper Colorado River Commission is, you know, the, the commissioners are all representatives of state. There's no place on the commission for a federal representative like a tribe. Um, it would take an act of Congress to change that. Um, if we do anything at all, we might set up sort of an ad hoc advisory committee that could include a tribal member. What do you think about that? I don't have a very informed opinion on that. One, because you're, um, it's the first I've heard of it. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Um, as far as the, the Ute tribes, you know, I'm familiar with the Animus and the La Plata River. Uh, less of the, I'm less familiar with their, their rights with respect to the Colorado River Basin, so I don't know, right? If, it, if a tribe has water rights within the basin of something, tribal consultation, tribal cons representation seems to make sense. If they're just within the state, but aren't necessarily on that watershed, I think there'd be less of an argument. Does that make sense? And that, but, but tribal water rights, uh, under the McCarran Amendment, tribal water rights are actually administered by the state, right? Does that make sense? They're, they're, the feds and the tribes are conceived as reserving those water rights, but they're administered according to essentially state water law. They have to go through adjudications and things like that. So, so tribes do have like a, they're not, they're not over here in the ethos, although sometimes they get treated that way. So do you think they should have a seat on the Upper Colorado River Commission? Like I said, that in that particular case, I can't comment because I'm not familiar enough with the background. One of the things that, that I've been wondering about is um, when oh, we're covering these various issues, um, whether it's tribal water rights or looking at um, access to clean water or, you know, whatever it is, like oftentimes journalists, just like academics, we're coming to communities as outsiders. And I'm curious, um, you know, in academia, there hasn't always been a great track record for not causing harm among communities, and the same could certainly be said for journalism. And I'm curious if you all have ideas or strategies for how we cover disadvantaged or vulnerable communities when it comes to water in ways that are productive and useful and, and don't cause harm. Because I think, you know, when journalists, I mean, often like I look around the room and we're mostly 
you know, we're mostly a bunch of like white middle class people covering all of these issues. And um, how do we, obviously like the, the, the big solution is we work harder to diversify journalism. But in the meantime, as that is still something that needs a lot of attention, like how do we do a better job? Yeah, <laughs> I think step one, I mean, this is this is any, what any good reporter is doing with any of their sources. A lot of it is really informed consent, right? So when you're talking to, uh, uh, to people who are going to end up in your story, make sure that they understand that, you know, they're going to be quoted. This is on the record kind of understanding, uh, you know, where they're coming from and giving them space to maybe talk off the record and build some trust and build a relationship with them, right, before you start writing about them um, and before kind of uh, asking them some sort of pointed questions. Um, I think it's really important, uh, especially with this kind of reporting, to be there in person. Um, local reporters, you all have an advantage because you can kind of drive out and go meet people face to face. And if they don't want to talk to you the first time, you can go back to them, you know, a week or a month later and say, hey, I know you said you're not interested, but, you know, I'm hoping you change your mind. And can I make a case for why I think it's important to have your voice in the story? So um, I think a lot of this reporting needs to be on the ground. Um, you need to kind of sort of step back and understand that a lot of people maybe have not uh, worked with reporters before. They don't understand what um, on the record or on background or off the record means, right? So kind of talking them through um, all of that. Um, and then also just, you know, there there have been instances where I've talked to people and they've said this is on the record and like we've agreed to everything and they've we've had a full conversation and I've gotten great quotes and I'm excited to use it in my story. And then they kind of change their mind and say, hey, I don't feel comfortable anymore. I thought about this some more. And, you know, like from a legal standpoint and technically you said it's on the record, so it's on the record and I have you on tape saying it's on the record, right? But then kind of learning to remember that this is ultimately a story and we're talking about someone's lives and so sort of stepping back and saying, all right, maybe I'm going to find another person for the story and just kind of moving away. So I think kind of, you know, this is again what you would do with any source, uh, not just people of color or not just, uh, you know, uh, folks from low-income communities is just being a human being first and kind of respecting respecting them, and I think that's that's just the place to start. Yeah. Uh, from the academic perspective, yes, we have a long history of mistreating all sorts of other peoples, um, and I think part of it is um, to do any justice to their story is ask them what their story is. Yeah. Start with what they want to talk about. And also respect and understand the reciprocity of your entry point. So my entry point here was not with Native peoples. It was not with the state engineer. It was with Hispanos on the Sekias. That's where I started. That sort of angled into that. And then I covered the other arts parts of it. So I can't speak to um, the deeper understanding like Picaris or Isleta or Laguna. But there are written pieces already out there that I felt, okay, that's, that's out there already. I don't have to worry too much. Even if I did check um, with people that I knew at Picaris or his letter to say, is this okay to talk about it in these terms, right? And part of that is honoring sort of like um, the bounds um, with which we work and also uh, our, our long difficult histories with these. But this is principally ethnography, so long quotational use directly from folks. 
Uh, part of what we have to go through at any institution now is part of the institutional review board. I know it sounds sexy, right? Yeah. It's basically to protect the institution, not you, not the interviewee. And so part of that is to go to them to say, like, look, I'm going to use pseudonyms if you sign off on this. You will be protected. There's no identity. I won't. I'll mask certain things. So if you're in your 40s, I'll say you're in your 50s. If your name is Doug, I'll call you Miguel, right? There's a certain standard there to protect identity uh, because these people still have to live in their villages, towns, cities, or in the office of the state engineer and still get along with their coworkers or with their other folks that they're irrigating with. That creates some strain, as you might imagine, because then that blurs a little bit the lines like, wait, is this a real source? Or is it, you know, fake social science news? Um, so there's a little awkwardness there, and I would own that. But I don't have much other choice uh, because I also don't want to put people in uh, harm's way or in difficult positions where they'd start more fights on the ditch because of what they said about their neighbor. That's the last thing I want. Um, and, you know, part of this, so IRB, pseudonyms, anonymize as best and protect as you can. But, um, but I think starting with their their notions and their perceptions. So present back what you intend to present or write about, see what they think about it, have them have at it, critique your work first before it even goes to an editor, right? Um, so those are some of the practices that have shifted just in the last 20 years, you know, being an academic, but it's still no less awkward because I'm still, you know, a state away going down to New Mexico to ask people, hey, let's talk about water, which is not exactly um, safe sometimes. I could just add to that. I would also say um, ask relevant questions, right? So, for instance, when you're with a farmer or a rancher, they might be very uh, reticent to share details about, um, you know, exactly how many acres they're farming or how much their water right is specifically, right? Or, like, where they are in the adjudication system or, you know, yeah. So so these are questions. So sort of think through before you go into these interviews what they might be sensitive about. And whether you actually need those details for your story. Maybe, maybe it doesn't actually matter precisely how much water they're using other than to know that they've saved a certain percentage. Or, you know, there are ways to kind of talk about this and convey the same information to your reader without getting that specific in a way that makes your source uncomfortable. So kind of thinking through that, I think, is helpful. That's a good point because you know when you talk about them in terms of property rights or acreage, you're really asking someone in some ways, "How wealthy are you?" Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's very a very charged personal question. It's a quick way to end an interview. Um, so Jay gave us permission to go a few minutes over. If anybody has like a lightning round question, wow. anybody? Uh, lightning round and water. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, and maybe round. Heather, um, you mentioned a little bit about solutions. Oh, this is, I don't think we have time for all of these. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think that the GWIS solutions are going to do it. You know what I mean? Um, putting a bunch of rubber balls on top of a reservoir to prevent evaporation, I'm not putting my hope in that. Um, it's not that I, I necessarily discourage technology, but I think we're actually – one of my biggest uh, – that I p wish people would explore is land and water use planning mm -hmm. on the front end because cities and towns are becoming oligopolies and monopolies of water and that's where the usage is. Um, I really think people should think about what do we want this, what do we want Fort Collins to be? What do we want it to represent? Because in one sense, Fort Collins is very, you know, pro-sustainability, pro-green city and then it's just eating up farmland and water. Um, so putting a, 
I could keep going. I swear to goodness, I could, and and I'll be. I would talk to you afterwards if you want. But I think I would love if more effort was put on the front end toward land and water use planning. Mm -hmm. Asics, do you have a quick question? Okay. Um, please give our panelists a thunderous. Thanks for coming.